a lot of the sorts of things that people are really perceiving as the biggest contributors to the cost of living challenges are things that the only way the Fed is going to affect those prices is by slowing demand dramatically. And that's going to have other costs on our economy and on our political feelings. Hello, and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Americans aren't happy with the economy, and it's no wonder why when you look at the latest inflation numbers out this week. Prices have risen 8.5% since last March, and wages haven't kept pace, rising 6% in the past year. Economists are debating whether there are silver linings in March's inflation numbers, but nonetheless, 8.5% inflation is the highest rate in four decades. And Americans have taken note. According to Gallup, 17% of Americans say the high cost of living is the most important issue facing the country. That's the most since 1985. In the University of Michigan survey of consumers, more households reported that they expected worsening finances over the coming year than at any point in the history of the survey, which began in the 1940s. And only 30 to 35% of Americans in polling approve of President Biden's handling of the economy. Americans' assessment of where we are and what the future looks like is pretty brutal. And today, we're going to look at the economics behind that assessment. And here with me to do that is Professor of Economics and International Relations at George Washington University, Tara Sinclair. Welcome back to the podcast, Tara. It's great to be back, Galen. So first off, let's look under the hood of those top-line inflation numbers. What prices are rising the most or least and why? Well, as everybody has noted, it's food and gas where really people are both feeling the pinch personally as well as what is really contributing to these incredibly high numbers. In fact, if we strip out food and energy costs, which many different forecasters do in order to get a more stable estimate of inflation, that drops it by two percentage points down to 6.5%. So it's still very high, but it's really that food and energy cost. So when people are going to the pump, when people are going to the grocery store, that's where people are really seeing these eye-popping price increases And that's what a lot of people feel day to day is even bigger numbers than the 8.5% that was reported for March. Yeah, I mean, we've heard a lot about gas prices, particularly since the start of the war in Ukraine, but food prices have also gone up significantly. So 8.8% over the past year, meat prices are up 15%. Why is food outpacing other parts of the economy? And what implications does that have for consumers? Yeah, well, it's a complex set of conditions that have really brought us to this point. So part of it is just continued shifts in household consumption behavior. We went through the pandemic. We all of a sudden started bringing all of our food to be made at home or to be consumed at home rather than going out to restaurants. And now we're trying to shift back to a bigger mix of some food at home, some food out. And those shifts are costly. It takes more spending in order to change what's going on in the economy. But then also, we think a lot about the war having to do with gas prices, but it also has to do with food prices because we're thinking about the potential impacts on grains, particularly wheat, but also thinking about getting fertilizer for farming. And that 
already can have an impact on food prices today, even though it's not affecting the availability of food today. But all of these prices are made with a forward-looking idea in mind. And if we're expecting further scarcity down the line, prices will go ahead and go up today. So as you pointed out, there's a couple different numbers we can actually look at in this consumer price index report. There's the top line inflation, and then there's core inflation, which strips out those food and gas prices. And when you strip out those food and gas prices, some economists have said, hey, there's a silver lining in this report because the rise in core inflation is slowing, right? So from January to February, it rose by half a percentage point. From February to March, it rose by just 0.3 percentage points. Is that overly optimistic? I mean, core inflation is, is still rising. What should we make of that? Well, so a couple of things. First of all, it was a pleasant surprise to see that smaller core inflation number, not just because it was smaller than the previous month in terms of the, the growth rate, but also because it was lower than expectations. And one thing that we keep seeing with inflation over and over again is that it keeps beating forecaster expectations. And to actually see that headline number just come in at what forecasters had predicted and to see that core number lower gives some optimism that we might be finally catching up with expectations and that we might be getting a handle on where the economy actually is. And that suggests that then policymakers might be better able to control it and bring inflation down. You know, of course, that may be good news from a macroeconomic perspective, but when it comes to what Americans are actually experiencing, those food and gas prices might be ultimately the most salient. Of course, we're a politics podcast, so we're focused in large part on how Americans are experiencing this economy. As core inflation maybe slows at you know its rate of increased inflation, what should we expect from those food and gas prices? That's really the big question mark. I want to just highlight one thing up front, which is that there's a very different concept between inflation and thinking about cost of living. And that's something that when policymakers are talking about inflation, they're thinking about this general rise in price levels. So in that sense, hopefully people's wages are keeping up with that. And so we may not be seeing the cost of living challenges. What I think people are feeling is really that decline in their real wages or their inability to keep up with these fast price growth so that when they're bringing their paycheck home and then they're going to the grocery store, they really are seeing diminished purchasing power. And so I, I think that that's important to keep in mind is that cost of living is something that is what people really, really care about, but it can also be quite hard for policymakers to directly address. So, you know, with that in mind, you know, if we think about what's driving these you know, higher costs in terms of, of gas and food and, and where is that going in the future, a lot of that is, is really determined in part by international markets, which is what makes it hard for policymakers to target that. And one of the reasons why sometimes they strip those numbers out and only look at what we call core inflation, which is the less volatile part of inflation, but it's also the less salient part for cost of living. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about blame, which is, as I mentioned, being a politics podcast going to come into play, already has come into play in large part over the past year, and will probably only become more salient over the coming eight months. When it comes to the current inflation that we're seeing, the list of suspects includes pandemic shutdowns leading to supply chain issues and also shifting demand, as you mentioned. There's government stimulus spending, 
Fed monetary policy, pent up savings from the pandemic, people not going out and doing stuff. And then, of course, most recently, the war in Ukraine. Is there a way to disentangle how responsible each of those factors is? I really don't think there is. It's a very complicated world that we live in, and all of those factors play a role. You know, obviously, there's going to be economic research for years to come trying to do exactly that sort of disentanglement and talk about the relative contributions of each. But to try and do that in real time is really challenging. I do think that one thing is important to think about, though, is that there might be a difference between who's to blame and who's responsible. So on the one hand, we might think about which of these factors are things that led us to this point and that we might be able to learn lessons for future situations. But there's also just the question of what do we do now and mm -hmm. what actions should be taken now moving forward? And those might be completely separate lessons and completely separate actions. So, for example, some economists are really saying that you know, some of the stimulus spending is to blame for part of the faster price rises that we've been seeing. But at the same time, that might not necessarily say that that was a wrong decision. That might just be a cost of having seen a really quick recovery in the economy. Mm -hmm. So we might have some blame there. And then thinking about, okay, well, who's responsible for cooling that back off? Well, that typically falls on the hands of the Federal Reserve. I want to talk a little bit about Fed policy in a minute, but you said that economists are going to be doing research for years to come. The Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, I'm sure you probably saw, has already tried to start that research. And they compared American stimulus spending and inflation to other economically developed countries and found that we were an outlier in terms of providing stimulus that well exceeded 100% of people's incomes. And that that led to about a 3% increase in prices in 2021. So that's not even talking about 2022 at this point. Do you think it's fair to assign 3% of the inflation that we're seeing to that stimulus that was above and beyond what people were already making? You and I had conversations during that time period where it was very difficult to balance the economics and the politics of the situation. Mm -hmm. And in terms of thinking about the set of feasible policy packages, what we could get done in the U.S. in a reasonable time period was a really small set. And so we can talk about our dreams of targeted policy that would have exactly preserved people's income, kept the economy going, protected people's health, but not gone over. But you know, it makes me think a lot about different uh, you know, sorts of TV games that people have played in the past, where on the one hand, you wonder, was our goal to not go over or was our goal to not go under? And I think this time, the lesson that we learned from the global financial crisis was we went under. And a lot of people suffered unnecessarily. And so we went the other way this time. It was very much a go big, let's not go back and do that retroactive historical study and say that we could have gone bigger. And so we swung very far that way. It's interesting. I mean, when you talk about how there's what economists can look at retrospectively and even in the moment, and then there's what politics can muster. It was a very interesting political moment because, of course, you had President Trump in the White House initially, of course, and then you have Democrats in Congress who are pushing to spend more money and President Trump likely thinking, hey, you know, the more stimulus we can get, I'm up for re-election, let's spend it. And so it was a sort of unique situation, which was the opposite of what we saw 
eventually in 2010 after Republicans won the House, which was, you know, a Democrat in office who may have wanted to spend more money, but Republicans in Congress who were less likely to. So yeah, of course, the way that politics interacts with all of this, and then Democrats, once they had full control, passed that American Rescue Plan, which gets us a little bit into now Fed policy and what to do going forward. I'm sure people who are paying attention to inflation have maybe paid some attention to criticism from former Secretary of the Treasury, Larry Summers. When Democrats were debating that American Rescue Plan, he said, guys, don't do this. This is too big. We're going to see inflation. He's now saying that the Federal Reserve is not acting aggressively enough to tamp down on inflation today. What are the arguments for and against the Fed's current position, approach that it's taking to inflation? Yeah, and I would really describe the Fed as kind of trying to walk that middle path. There are people that are both more dovish and more hawkish. There, there, are, there are people on, the, interestingly enough to say, the Larry Summers side saying that the Fed should be tightening faster. And there are a lot of people that will do this kind of retrospective. They should have been tightening already. There's discussions about what that tightening should look like, how much it should be in terms of their more traditional interest rate hikes, and how much it should be about addressing their very large balance sheet, right? all of the asset purchases that they did over time. When are they going to start selling those off? There's that side of, th of things that there's uh, a lot of tightening they can and should do, maybe should have started earlier and should definitely be ramping up faster. But then there are also others on the other side of where the Fed is that say, actually keep it slow and steady. A lot of this inflation pressure is already starting to perhaps soften. And a lot of the sorts of things that people are really perceiving as the biggest contributors to the cost of living challenges are things that the only way the Fed is going to affect those prices is by slowing demand dramatically. And that's going to have other costs on our economy and on our political feelings. And so you know, the Fed is definitely, I think, in the, in the middle path and, and really trying to work between a rock and a hard place here. Because the concern is if they go too hard, they increase unemployment too much and that that yes. hurts people from the other side of the equation. Exactly. And I think the argument from Larry Summers and others in his camp is that the labor market is too tight. And if it isn't loosened a little bit, we're just going to see continued inflation. Is that something that's generally accepted by macroeconomists or is that controversial. Because of course, you look at the situation, you're like, I don't want people to be unemployed. But also, you know, you don't want people to be coming poor across the board if their wages aren't keeping up with the rising prices. I think a lot of this debate comes down to determining what we think our natural rate of unemployment is, which is a relatively unpleasant term if we say that you know, some percentage of the population just should be unemployed. But there's this sense of the unemployment that the Fed can impact and the unemployment that really is due to structural situations in the economy, the time it takes for people to search for other jobs. And so the Fed still has that at about 4%. And so from that perspective, the labor market at 3.6% is quite tight. Other economists will estimate that number to be quite a bit lower. And then in that case, maybe there is still room for the labor market to see more employment, lower unemployment. And a lot of this inflation may not be as tightly tied to the unemployment rate as our historical models might suggest. Okay, so 
when it comes to what things look like going forward, I want to read a quote from Richard Curtin, who conducts the Consumer Sentiment Survey at the University of Michigan, which I cited in the intro. He wrote last week, quote, there is a high probability that a self-perpetuating wage price spiral will develop in the next few years. Households have already become less resistant to paying higher prices, and firms have become less resistant to offering higher wages. Prices and wages will continue to spiral upward until the cumulative erosion in inflation-adjusted incomes causes the economy to collapse in recession. Do you think that we have entered a wage price spiral or on the cusp of a wage price spiral? There is a risk of a wage price spiral. But I think that the data so far does not suggest that, that really a lot of the prices that we're, we're seeing elevated the most and the, growing the most quickly are still in some way pandemic related. And so even though it has broadened out, it's still the case that I think we can tie this to the fact we are still in a pandemic and therefore the economy is still acting wildly. So... This idea that we're going to enter this new regime where people are regularly demanding you know, 6% raises and then employers are passing that on in their costs so that prices are going up by 6 or 7% a year, that is something that we have to watch for. And particularly as we see the wages growing and we see the prices growing across the board and not just in a few sectors. But I think that we're still pretty far away from seeing this being led on the wage side. It really looks to still be led on the price side. And then people are somewhat responding to that. And and they aren't really getting the wages that they're asking for. That's why we're seeing real wages actually decline. So, of course, Richard Curtin used that word recession. Economists are increasingly, you know, throwing that word around a little bit. The Wall Street Journal conducted a survey of economists and asked about the likelihood of the country being in a recession sometime in the next 12 months. That has increased. It's now up to 28%, say, the probability of us being in a recession in the next 12 months. That's up from, it was 18% in January and 13% a year ago. Is this something that you're concerned about in the coming year or two? I'm always concerned about a recession. I think that's something that we always need to be on the lookout for. But at the same time, if we look at the macroeconomic data as it currently stands, we would need the economy to be walloped by something. And that something could be the Fed raising rates too quickly. But I think the Fed is so carefully aware of trying to weigh that balance that if we do see another recession, I'm not expecting it to be anything near the size of what most people have seen as recessions in their lifetimes. If we think about many working adults these days, they have the pandemic recession and they have the global financial crisis that they've seen. Those were two, on very different dimensions, incredibly outsized recessions. And so we might see something more of just a slowing of the economy. And that might be what the Fed has to do in order to bring inflation under control. They may have to do even more. Like if there's a lot of political pressure for them to really bring inflation down very quickly, and they do really ramp up rates very quickly, we could see a deeper recession. 
But I think we also have to keep in mind that there's a range of different types of recessions. And when economists just say a recession might be coming, that might just mean that the unemployment rate is going to go from 3.5 up to 4, right? That's a half a percentage point rise in the unemployment rate. We might call that a recession, but that's very different from seeing a 10% unemployment rate. How good are economists and maybe the Fed specifically at predicting recessions and also more specifically predicting what inflation will look like in the future? Oh, Galen, you asked my absolutely favorite question. So I'd love to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So if we think about the Federal Reserve being a really good forecaster of the U.S. economy overall, there's been a number of different competitions, evaluations and forecasts. The Federal Reserve consistently ranks in the top. So they're a good forecaster overall. However, based on my own research with some of my colleagues and other people's research has found similar, the Fed doesn't forecast recessions. They don't include them in their overall forecasts. They don't show GDP going down below zero for the growth rate. So if we think about how hard is it to forecast recessions, it's near impossible to have any kind of reasonable track record of forecasting recessions. And another thing that we know from other research is that forecasting the economy in normal times is pretty easy. You don't need a lot of information. You can basically just use historical economic data and the future looks a lot like the past. However, when we start shifting the economy into potential recessionary risk period, all of a sudden we need hundreds of different indicators, even just to be able to time when a recession starts not to predict it in advance, but just to be there at the start and be like, oh, it's starting now. To be able to see that, it takes so much information and data. So for forecasters, there's always going to be people, if they're sitting there saying it's going to be a recession, it's going to be a recession, and they keep saying that every quarter, sometimes they're going to be right. But to try and find someone with a consistent track record of being able to predict not just there will be a a recession in the next couple of years, but to get the timing close enough to write to enact policy to prevent that recession, we're just not there as a profession. There are many different parts of the economy, so that's recessions. The Fed is also trying to predict all different kinds of movement in the economy, including what future inflation might look like, so they know to what degree they should be raising rates. Are there parts of the economy that we're better at predicting and or worse at predicting? Yes, and I'm glad you brought us back to inflation because that is an area where historically the Fed really did have an advantage. They were better at forecasting inflation than the private sector was for a long time. But then as the Fed became more transparent and sharing more of the Fed's information and views, really that information advantage eroded. And now really the private sector and the Fed are are pretty much neck and neck in terms of being able to predict inflation. And so what that means is that we're not very good at predicting inflation either uh, because- (laughs) Love to hear it. Let's let's be honest. It's hard. It's it's a really hard job. And and one, one particular example of thinking about that is both in terms of predicting, but also in terms of controlling before the pandemic. Remember, we were struggling to get within the Fed's target range of inflation from below. In fact, you know, some of the numbers that we're seeing now as the one month percent change numbers, we were seeing as one year percent change Mm -hmm. numbers pre-pandemic, right? 1.2%. I could have read that and been like, well, that sounds like a a 12-month change that I was used to. But clearly now we're in a very different regime. 
And so these different regimes have very different aspects of, of challenges for forecasting, but they're, they both tie together in the sense of, we think a lot about the Phillips curve, this relationship between unemployment and inflation. And we tend to think there's this trade-off, but there was a lot of discussion pre-pandemic about that trade-off being pretty flat. And therefore, you know, it, it may take a lot of shifting and perhaps a lot of slowing the economy in order to bring inflation back down now, just like it was hard to bring inflation up before. I have other questions that I want to ask that we'll get to, but the forecasting piece is, is so interesting. And I know that you have done a lot of research into it that I almost want to ask a philosophical question, which is if we aren't, and I say we as if I'm an economist, I'm not an economist, but if economists aren't that great at predicting these things, why try? Well, there's a couple of reasons. So first of all, we have to make forward-looking decisions. We can't live completely in the present. And in particular, if we think about monetary policy, we know that monetary policy has an impact on the economy with some kind of a lag. You know, some people say six months, 12 months. It probably is variable over time. But so if we want any policy action at all, we have to have some kind of guess as to what the future is going to look like so we can make a, a reasonable decision. And as I said, in normal times, making those sorts of decisions are pretty well informed because our forecasts are, are pretty good in normal times. The challenge really comes at precisely the times when we most care about having a change in policy. That's mm -hmm. really where we struggle and where insights about the future are particularly valuable and particularly hard to get. So we do it because we have to, but we also do it because we keep trying to get better. Right? We keep evaluating our models and we, we, we look, we make a prediction and then we see where we're at and we can learn from that. And if we think about like the history in terms of whether we're thinking about recessions or we're thinking about big inflationary periods, we don't have actually that many episodes to study. So we're still pretty young in terms of learning about these episodes and getting enough information to improve our decision making. All right. Well, now I'm going to ask you to do exactly what you just said is so hard. I mentioned we cover politics here. As far as, you know, the political realm is concerned, what happens between now and November may be pretty influential in how voters behave. There was a debate after this report about whether or not we've reached peak inflation. Do you have an opinion on on that, or at least what are the sides of that debate in terms of whether we should expect inflation to fall from here? Awesome. Thanks for letting me play the professor role of the sides of the debate yes. rather than necessarily <laughs> just putting in my, my, my own views. So the debate is broadly that we are seeing some of these growth rates starting to slow so that, you know, if we're looking now, we keep looking at variations of gradients, but trying to get a sense of when we might be at peak inflation. And the first glimmer of, of hope for support for that side really did come from that slowing in core inflation this past month. But there's still a lot of, of issues to unwind. I will highlight, we haven't talked about shelter yet. And that's an area, if we think about it, that's also a huge contributor to the consumer price index. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there's still more room for that to contribute to faster price rises in the coming months. Which is housing costs. Exactly, exactly. Housing costs, rental costs. So that's an area where I'm still quite concerned. 
But if that starts to wane a little bit, then I think we're, we're coming closer to peak inflation. But then I think the really big question is how fast does it come down from peak? And does it come down fast enough for it to feel better for the electorate? Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be really tough to pull off. Uh, and I, I think most economists will say that at this point, there's a small scenario where actually things really crash, where we really see that people's spending demand kind of hits a peak and then everybody just really cuts back on spending, either because higher prices are their own cure for higher prices and people really pull back on spending due to the higher prices, due to the higher interest rates from the Fed, due to concerns about geopolitical risks. There's lots of of reasons why we could see a sudden pullback from spending that could actually potentially even bring inflation below the Fed's target. But whether that would happen before November is is really pretty unlikely. And then, of course, we'd have a whole other set of reasons to be upset about the state of the economy. Right. Do you have a sense of when you expect peak inflation to be, given, you know, what you said about housing costs still rising? It honestly, there are people out there that are predicting it could be anywhere in 2022. There's even a few people that are saying peak won't come until 2023. Okay. But I I think the modal expectation is honestly sometime this summer. Zooming out, who is doing the best in the economy as it currently, you know, uh, the economy is about trade-offs. And so not everyone is losing purchasing power in the current economy. Who is doing best and who is doing worst? Yeah, well, this is a really important question because when we think about inflation or we think about cost of living, we think about these average baskets. And then, of course, individual experience varies very widely. And, of course, people have focused a lot on concerns on the people who are really suffering the most. And those are going to be people who are spending a large proportion of their income on food and gas, Mm -hmm. right? Because those are the ones that are really, really being hit particularly hard. So people who rely on a car to go to work and to you know, have relatively low income and are really focused a lot on, on food is, is, is really hitting them hard. People who are doing well are going to be people who are you know, living in cities who aren't necessarily or, or who are working remotely, who aren't needing to spend a lot on gas or other modes of, of transportation and who are relatively high income so that they can delay expenditures if they see something that's too expensive, they they can wait, or they can just buy it because they have the income or the wealth to afford that. So you can see these huge disparities where some people are are really feeling the pinch and others, in particular, if you think about people who already own their homes, so they aren't seeing the rise either in terms of mortgage rates or in terms of rents. So you see very different groups there. That's an important reminder. I think that Some people, particularly on the left or in the Biden administration, have made arguments about like, well, inflation can be good or inflation isn't all bad. This was early on. I think at this point, for sure, the White House is concerned about inflation, but that, oh, you know, as long as the wages at the lower end of the income spectrum are rising faster than prices, it'll be okay. And it looked like there were portions of the lower end of the spectrum in service industries, in hospitality, in food, and things like that that were rising faster than prices. But it looks like across the board, 
this isn't going to turn out well for people who are the worst off among us. Yeah, that was actually a hope. We, we've gone through such a roller coaster in this economy and the various experiences. And, and if we slice the data at different stopping points and we just discuss, okay, well, right now, where are we and which groups are being helped and hurt? That has varied a lot. And in some ways, that's actually really good economic news that there's been some variation in the outcomes because historically, with a lot of different economic events, we could consistently predict who were being harmed. And it was always the same group of people. It was this same low-income, low-wealth group that was just getting hammered over and over again. And at certain points during the pandemic, we were actually saying that actually that group was doing pretty well. And now maybe we're going back to the old routine where that group is once again being really particularly impacted by our newest economic problem. All right. So zooming all the way out now, you are a macroeconomist and we've been focusing on inflation, but there's more to the economy. Kind of simple question here, but what do you see as the bright spot in the economy today, the thing that is maybe worth being most optimistic about, and the thing that most concerns you, the thing worth being most pessimistic about? All right. So in terms of the bright spot, number one is we're at 3.6% unemployment. And the idea that we got to 3.6% unemployment as quickly as we did to see the economy improve as quickly as it did out of the depths of despair from the pandemic recession is really remarkable. And I think that that is really something to celebrate and to learn a lot of positive lessons from our experiences there. Also, the other bright spot that I'm still, it it hasn't fully realized itself, but I'm still optimistic it's coming, is the potential for coming up with new technologies and new ways of working that make us both happier at work and more productive at work that can have really big macroeconomic implications. You know, one way that we're going to be able to see stronger wages going forward is if we can make our workforce more productive going forward. And so if we can enable more productive, happier work, that's going to be a big move forward. And I think we're we're still sorting out the details of you know, various forms of work from home and technological advancements to, to make work easier in person. But I think there's some hope there. So that's that's a burgeoning bright spot. On the areas to be concerned about, you know, obviously people keep bringing those up and apparently we like to be dismal creatures. Like it's not just economists that are dismal. Like people, when they look at the economy, really do zero in on the, the negatives and, and in terms of you know, the, the, the negative in terms of cost of living and that impact on people's perception of the economy is, is very visible. And then also the concern about us perhaps being so concerned about that, that we end up going into another recession. And in particular, where some individuals, the people that end up being unemployed in that recession, may be bearing the brunt of the economic costs for that adjustment. That's something that just really concerns me. If if we're all experiencing higher prices now, and then we ask just a, a relatively small percentage of the labor force to lose their income entirely in order to bring those prices down a little bit. That is a a trade-off that does... That happens, I guess, in 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 the American economy. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it it is how how the economy works, but it's, it's not great, and I think it's something we need to be aware of. Yeah, that's a good reminder that behind all of these numbers are people. Economics and also even 
political and election data can sometimes feel so sterile. But really what we're trying to do is describe a world in which people have hopes and dreams and needs, and that's what it all comes down to. Tara, thank you so much for joining me today. As you mentioned, we've chatted through many different ups and downs on the roller coaster of the economy over the past two plus years. I think we first spoke back in April of 2020 when people were saying, if you know, if the government doesn't act immediately, we're going to see 30% unemployment and our heads were spinning. Now all the way back to this point where we're at three and a half percent unemployment and worried about the cost of living and prices. It really has been a roller coaster. And thank you for helping us understand it all throughout. Oh, it's been my pleasure talking with you, Valen. Tara Sinclair is a professor of economics and international relations at George Washington University. My name is Galen Drook. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidigari-Curtis is on audio editing. Chadwick Matlin is our editorial director. And Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or a review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.